The following Bible study is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. For more studies and information, go to graceteaching.net. And now, here's our Bible study. What? It has been a few weeks, yeah. And sometimes when I'm on vacation, you have people that ask you to teach a Bible study or something, and I didn't do any of that on this trip. We just, we did, if we did Bible studies, they were very super, super informal as you're just talking with people and, and uh, spending some time in God's Word, trying to encourage and help them or whatever situation they might be in at that moment. We have been looking at God's covenants. Hopefully none of you forgot that. Uh, this is what we're doing. We're looking at a, a study of biblical covenants. And the reason we say biblical covenants is because there are theological covenants that people have superimposed on the word of God. Uh, and I always think about this, and I just say this is, because this was a discussion I had with somebody while we were on our, on our trip. Um, we're dispensationalists, and sometimes covenant theologians will say, well, because they have this covenant of works that they think God had in the past with Adam, that Adam could earn eternal life by being good in the garden. And he failed, so God introduced this covenant of grace. Though there's no biblical foundation for saying that either one of those things are true. But they will point their finger at us and they say, well, you have all these dispensations and the Bible doesn't reveal those. And I would say, I agree. Because I would say, you can be a, a dispensationalist if you recognize three dispensations, because the Bible mentions three. We're under grace. There is one called the fullness of times, and the present dispensation of grace is contrasted to that of law before. Are there some others that we can and we have kind of deduced by looking at them? Yeah. But I, if, if you don't want to hold to those others, fine. But you need to recognize that the Bible at least points out those three. And those are biblical, see. So we don't want to superimpose something on the Word of God necessarily that isn't legitimately there. So we're looking at biblical covenants in this study. And today what we're going to do is we're going to start looking at four covenants with Abraham. Four covenants God has made with Abraham. Now here's the first point, and I want everybody to make sure you understand this. God can make more than one covenant with a person, or we could even say with a group of people. He can make more than one. In fact, the last study when we were here, we looked at the fact that God made two covenants with Noah. He made a covenant to save Noah, and after he got off the ark, he made a covenant with Noah and all of Noah's family, which were all part of Noah's family, never to flood the whole earth and destroy the whole earth with a flood ever again. God has made more than one covenant with Israel. There's the covenant of the law. There's a covenant that, well, when I was growing up, they called it the Palestinian covenant. You know why they called it the Palestinian covenant when the early dispensationalists were writing that? Because it wasn't the land of Israel then. It was called the land of Palestine in maps. Because the nation of Israel that we know hadn't been formed yet. So they were doing it based on maps at that time. But we would we'd call it an Israeli covenant or an Israel covenant. He made that. And he's made a promise of a new covenant in the future. So that's at least three covenants that God specifically made with the nation of Israel. So God can make more than one covenant with a person or group of people. And I think it's important to know because what we're going to look at today is that God has made more than one covenant to Abraham. We saw when we were early on in this study that there are two rules, and these come out of Galatians chapter 3. We're not going to go look at that today, 
but in Galatians chapter 3, that God does not add to a covenant he has made. In other words, once he makes a covenant, he doesn't come along and say, oh, we're going to add an addendum to that, and now we're going to include these people in that, or I'm going to add a new condition to that covenant that wasn't there before. God made a covenant. He said what he needed to say there, and he doesn't come along. He can make another covenant, but he's not going to change this one. Neither does God nullify a covenant he's made. And that's also important. The book of Galatians really makes that clear that the covenant that God made with Abraham, that that covenant was not nullified by the, by the bringing in of the covenant of law 430 years later. Okay? He didn't set the first aside. That other covenant was still valid. Okay? So all of this primarily is review, but a lead-in to what we're going to be looking at. Now we're going to go to Genesis chapter 12 to begin with because many people believe that these covenants with Abraham start in Genesis 12. A lot of them call this the covenant, although it is not called a covenant in Genesis, nor is it called a covenant anywhere else. Now one of the four covenants that God makes with Abraham is not called a covenant in Genesis, but it is called a covenant by three other people in different parts of Scripture. We're not going to look at that one today. We're not going to get to that. We're going to save that one for a reason. And that reason is, and I'll just tell you, because of the covenants God makes with Abraham, that's the only covenant that has a direct relationship to you and I. These first three covenants do not relate directly to you and I. You want to understand that? We're going to look at three covenants today, but they're not about us. But there is a covenant that God made with Abraham that does involve us. Okay? We're not going to get to that today. That'll be next week. So, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country. Okay, He has been over on the east side of the Sinai Peninsula, over in this area. This is where he was raised with his family. And he says, he says, so go forth from your country, go from your relatives, go from your father's house to a land that I will show you. Now, I think I, just, just as a little commentary on the side, all three of those things are important. He is separating Abraham from that land to take him to a new land. He's also separating Abraham from his other relatives. You and I may not appreciate that, although if you live in the royal city area, kind of different than places where I grew up, there's a real good chance that there's a lot of people here that there's maybe been three generations. Grandpa was here, and he maybe started farming, then and his sons stayed on, or sons, and they farmed, and now their kids may be farming, and maybe even in some cases there are grandkids that maybe are even starting to farm. And so they kind of stay in the same area. Traditionally, in a lot of places, because land was limited, the only person that stayed around and farmed in a location was the oldest son. The other sons, they had to go somewhere else and seek their fortune because you couldn't, if you kept dividing the land up pretty soon, all you got is a garden. <laughs> so they, so they, instead of, they couldn't keep adding land and keep adding land. In fact, when we were in Iowa, they were talking about this uh, selling and buying farmland out there that, I mean, farmers are desperate to add land and they can't. They basically have to wait for somebody to, to decide they're going to quit farming and then hopefully bid on and they get into major bidding wars on farmland and all of that. All of that to say is that he's going to, so the, you stayed around with your families. This is where Abraham was. He's going to separate them, but not only just from the families, but even from your father's house. Now, Abraham is going to have a nephew. 
that's going to end up staying up in um, this uh, a north region, just uh, up north of Israel up there called Haran. It's named after one of uh, uh, Abraham's relatives here. I believe one of his brothers. Yeah, his brother um, uh, back in verse 31 of chapter 11. And when they get up there in that land of Haran, when Isaac, excuse me, when Jacob goes back up there, and Jacob has the two wives, and they leave that land, what does Jacob's wife Rachel take with her that gets him into trouble? Household idols. What does that tell you about those people up there to the north? They were they were idol worshipers. And in fact, the New Testament tells us that, and Joshua says that at the end of the book of Joshua. He says, Abraham came from a family of idolaters. God separates Abraham not only from the country, not only from his relatives, but even from his father's house because those people were idolaters. And he wants Abraham to become a monotheist. That is a person that believes in one God and not in idols. Sometimes God has to do that with people. Sometimes God even has to do that with believers. In fact, we, I shared that the other night. Um, I shared that the other night at, at uh, the Wednesday night Bible study about uh, a good friend of Peg and I um, that we had when we were in college, that he was saved out of Roman Catholicism, who comes to, comes to the University of Northern Iowa, hears the gospel, he gets saved, he goes home, he's excited to tell his parents, his parents are Catholic, and his dad says, you're dead to me. And I don't know how many years it went on, but his dad would not, would not talk with him because he gave up on Catholicism to become a Christian. And his father didn't want anything to do. From what I understand, his father did eventually believe the gospel. And, uh, but I don't know when that transpired in there. We kind of lost contact a little bit with them over the years and did, didn't always get all the details. But sometimes God has to kind of separate us from these people that just want to keep drawing us back into this old lifestyle. And that can be a hard thing. Because when it's your mom and dad, and they don't go that way, they can continue to be a draw. Sometimes siblings can be. And so sometimes God takes us and separates us away from those things so that we learn to rely on him alone and not be drawn back into some of this. So anyway, enough commentary. Let's move on with our study. It could take you to a land that I will show you at the end of verse 1. Verse 2, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, Abram, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the woes that curse you I will curse, and in you all families of the earth shall be blessed. And that has to do, and when it says all families of the earth, probably literally is in that case is land. It's uh, families of the land at that time. So Abraham went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So he, this is so he's called when they're over there. They end up in Haran. They spend some time there, but that's not enough to separate from the land. Remember, he's got to leave his family and go down, and he's going to take him. And Abraham took Sarai, his wife, Lot, his nephew, and all the possessions which he had accumulated, and the persons that he had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Land of Canaan is named after the what we would call today, or what we use as the term Canaanites. Canaanites meant merchants. They were people that had established themselves originally in that land because that was a crossroads of Europe 
Asia, and Africa, and it was a major mer merchant area down there in what we call the land of Israel. It was a crossroads, and those people established themselves as merchants, and that's what the, that's what the word Canaan meant, or Canaanite meant a merchant. So they were people that did a lot of trading in there, and you're going to go down there to that land. None of this, by the way, is stated to be a covenant. It's simply God is calling him and making some promises. Can God make promises without it being a covenant? Yes. In fact, we spent a year and a half here looking at promises that God made to us, and most of those promises are not covenant promises. They're just promises God's made to us as his people. So God can make promises to us that are not covenant promises in that regard. And these are not uh, covenant promises uh, that he makes anywhere. So what do we have? The promises where he said he promised them land, a nation, blessing, and a great name. Now, we have a passage, and I want you to turn with me over to Acts 3.25. Turn with me over to Acts 3.25. Acts 3.25, and we have Peter that is giving a message here, and he's kind of rehearsing, relating some, some matters of history at the time, but it says in verse 25, and it is you, you, you Jews, who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abram. So he says, a covenant that God made to your fathers. Now when he says the fathers, who did Israel consider to be the fathers? Can you name them? What's the first one he's listed here? Abraham. Then Isaac and Jacob. Those were the, the key three fathers. So in other words, what he's doing is he's delineating that family line down there. It's Abraham and then it's Isaac. We're going to see a, 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 a situation hopefully today that will involve that one. And then Jacob. Because after Jacob, then it's all of Jacob's family after that. The first two, there are divisions in the family. There's Isaac and Ishmael. And there's Jacob and Esau, but he's choosing one son out of each one of those. But he doesn't choose one son out of the 12. All 12 sons inherited from Jacob. So anyway, he says, um, this is to your father, saying to Abraham, and in your seed, or by means of your seed, all families of the earth shall be blessed. He says the families of the earth are going to be blessed by your seed. Back in Genesis chapter 12, he says, and in you, he's talking to Abraham, by you. doesn't say by your seed, because he is not quoting from Genesis 12, chapter 12 like some people would suggest, not looking at the text carefully. What he's actually doing, if you go back to the book of Genesis and look at chapter 28, Genesis chapter 28, and look with me, chapter 28 and verse 14, and this now is, he, remember he said it was uh, back over there in Acts. Peter says that this was to your fathers, and he says to Abraham, and this is what he actually gets out. I want you to look at uh, verse 14. Your descendants, he's talking, this is God talking to Jacob now, your descendants shall also be like the dust of the earth. You shall spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south in you and in your descendants now, your seed, shall all families of the earth be blessed. This is actually the context that it's taken from, but what he's doing is he's extending the covenant that God made with Abraham and he's bringing it over and making sure Jacob knows this covenant is also for you. You are also part of this. 
Okay, does everybody kind of understand what's happened? Probably at this at this time, Jacob has is not yet what we would call a believer. That's going to actually come in in the, these events that are that are transpiring here. But Jacob does not leave the land and run into this situation as a believer. So when we have this here, this is the passage that actually tells us that it's going to be by your seed that the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's, he's, so he's quoting, making reference to that as an extension of what God has said to Jacob's grandfather. So the first covenant we actually have, if you go back to Genesis 15, now go we'll turn back to Genesis chapter 15, this is where we're actually going to have covenant number one. So Genesis 12 is a series of promises to a man that is not yet a believer in the sense that we think of being a believer that is justified. He's going to be actually be a believer. Let's look at this, and I don't have this on the outline, but in the first part of this chapter, Abraham has just come back from fighting a war. His nephew Lot got taken in this war with the kings. He's kind of collateral. He's taken, probably going to be a going to be made a, a slave in some sense to those kings. And so Abraham takes he and his 300 fighting men. Do you imagine what that's like to be a man that is so rich in cattle and sheep and goats that you have 300 fighting men that work for you? That's a lot of, that's a small army, isn't it? That is a small army. And so he, but he comes back from that battle and he's a little shaken up because I think he realizes I could have lost my life there. And so notice what happens. Verse 1 of chapter 15. This is totally an aside from our main study. But it says, after these things, the word of the Lord, that's God the Son. That should be a capital W in my opinion because he's talking about God the Son appearing here. The word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying. So the word comes and the word is saying. So he's speaking. Do not fear, Abraham. See, because Abraham's been afraid. I am your shield for you, and your reward shall be very great. And Abraham said, O Lord God, what are you going to give me since I am childless? The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. In other words, my wife doesn't even inherit this. This slave that I have, this steward from up in Damascus, he's, he's the one that would inherit all my stuff. And Abram said, since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. And then behold, the word again, the God the Son came to him saying, this man shall not be your heir, but one that shall come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he says, now look toward the heavens, count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. This is a man that is over 75 years old at this moment, very close, right around 75. God, he has no child at 75. He's looking out, God shows him the stars up there. He says, you're going to have descendants like those stars. If you can count those stars, you can count your kids. And it says to us in verse 6, and, and then he believed, or and he literally caused to believe, or caused to amen God. That word that's translated believe, and it is translated with the word believe in the New Testament, but in the Hebrew, it's the word amen. He literally, it's like he stands out there before God and goes, that's true. That's true. Because that's what amen in the Hebrew meant. It meant true. Solid, dependable. So that's what he's doing when he believes. I don't know if you guys remember our study on faith, but the idea of faith communicated in the New Testament, our New Testament word faith has a different idea than the Old Testament, the Hebrew word did. They both come together because we have passages that translate that show they're talking about a common idea, 
but they just looked at faith different in the Old Testament. Faith back in the Old Testament was like looking and saying, that's true. What you said is true because you are dependable. And so it says here, and he believed or amen God or said God is true or the Lord is true. And he being God reckoned or logically counted it to him for righteousness. So this is the point at which Abraham becomes an Old Testament believer. And this is the point that the New Testament writers tell us at least three times was the, was the point at which Abraham became righteous and by righteous by faith is at this juncture. So then they end up having a conversation down here because it's soon, no sooner does this happen. And he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldees. He's just trying to solidify. I'm not a different God. I'm the same God that's been with you from the very start to give you this land. And he said, oh, Lord God, how will I know that I'm going to possess this land? He just believed that he, a 75-year-old man with a 65-year-old wife, were going to end up having descendants as numerous as the stars. And he just believed that. But when God says, I'm the one that brought you out for this land, he immediately goes, well, how do I know that I'm going to get it? What is that? What, what, what one single? It's what? It, it's doubt. He just believed God on one hand, and on the next hand is like, well, how do I know I'm going to get the land? And so God ends up talking with him. Verse 10. Verse 10 says, And he brought all of these to him. Or excuse me. I've got to keep doing this. Verse 9. And he said to him, Bring to me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these to him, and he cut them in two, and laid them each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. And the birds of the prey came down on the carcasses, and Abraham drove them away. Verse 12 is very important now. Because if you remember, when we were first starting this study on covenants, we looked at that a covenant could be conditional or unconditional. An unconditional covenant, to use the language of modern treaties and such today, was we call unilateral. That is, it totally rests on the shoulder of one party, not on both. Bilateral or multilateral covenant or conditional covenant rests on the shoulders of both parties in some way. And so it says here, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror. He's having a nightmare, and great darkness fell on him. And God said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants shall be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years, and I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age." And then in the fourth generation, they shall return here for the perversity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark and behold, there was a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. Now I gave you a couple verses. We're not for the sake of time. We're not going to go look at them, but they're pictures of the Holy Spirit uh, as a torch, we have this over in the book of Revelation where the Spirit is pictured as flames or torches before the throne. We have also the thing over in Zechariah. And so what this, this, this flaming, what it says, flaming torch, a smoking oven and flaming. And by the way, I told my wife this was an interesting thing when it says a smoking oven. Let's see if anybody knows this. Okay, those of you that are food savvy people, it's the Hebrew word tandoori. Ah. <gasps> 
you ever been to an Indian restaurant? It's what they call the tandoori bread. It's for those ovens and they actually kind of smack the bread up on the inside of the oven and let it roast on the side in there and then they pull its flat bread. What? And tandoori meat, yeah. So, but that's what it was. They were little small clay portable ovens that people would take with them and they'd get them hot and they'd put their stuff inside. But that's what he's seen. I always wondered when it said an oven, a smoking oven. And once I looked at the Hebrew word, I was like, oh, I know what those are. You can buy them through Amazon if you want. And you could try to be a... A cook like that, but they're small ovens. And so he sees this smoking oven. Well, Abraham doesn't, because what's he doing? He's having a nightmare. He's sleeping through all of this. But he sees these, probably images of God the Spirit that is coming down uh, and doing this as a, as a visible thing uh, for our sake, and, he pass, and a flaming torch, and they pass between the pieces of the animal. Now, what was significant about somebody passing between the pieces of the cut-up animal in a covenant process? Do you remember this from early on? Yeah. If you didn't hear Peggy, it was the idea that if, when you walked between the pieces of an animal in a covenant, it was kind of like saying, let me be like these if I break this covenant. That's pretty serious. Could you imagine that? All those people that go out and agree to pay $500 a month to buy a vehicle, pay it to the car dealer so that they can own this vehicle that is way overpriced, and they sign their name on that line. They never are saying, let me be cut in two pieces like these animals if I quit making my payments. They're essentially saying, well, you can come back and repossess it if I quit. That's all that they're saying. But could you imagine that? Or signing a notice on a, a mortgage when you, when you take out your loan like that? But that's what this is. This, this contract is very serious. But who's taking responsibility for the contract? How come Abraham's not taking responsibility? What's he doing? He's sleeping. He's having a nightmare. He sleeps through the whole thing. He doesn't walk between it. So the only person that is shouldering responsibility for this covenant is God. It goes on, it says, in verse 18, on that day, this is very important. You get that? On that day, which means not before that day, not in Genesis 12, which we just looked at, but on that day, in Genesis 15, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. By the way, does anybody remember what the word made? You don't have to know what the Hebrew word is, but what is the Hebrew word? If we translate it literally into English, what would you translate it? Anybody remember? What? Cut. Almost every time you read the word made a covenant, it's always the Hebrew word karath. Barit karath. I cut a covenant. Why? Because you cut those animals. <laughs> you get the idea? It was a really graphic picture for them when they said this. So on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham saying, to your descendants or your seed, I have given this land from the river of Egypt, which... I'm not going to try to prove it or demonstrate it, but I think that that's the Nile. There's a lot of people saying no, because they, they want to try to make history fit this, and so they bring it up to this little dry, dry run creek, this one village uh, that's off to the east of, of the Nile quite a ways. No, I, I, we take this as the, because he calls it the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. It's going to extend all the way to that river that's up north and off to the, to the east. The land of the Kenite, and the Kenizzite, and the Cadmonite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Rephaim, and the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Girgashite, and the Jebusite. In other words, and we read all that and we go, okay, sure. Does that mean a lot to you, Kale? Kale? 
When I tell you the Perizzite, the Rephaim, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Girgashite, the Jebusite, what does that mean to you? They see, it doesn't mean a lot to us. You know, it meant something to, when Moses wrote that because the sons of Israel, when they came to the land, they were familiar with all these people. That at the, um, oh, I lost my place. The last group of people there, verse 21, what's the last group of people there? Jebusite. Do you guys know where the Jebusites lived? You know where their headquarters were? The Jebusites, the people of Jebus, lived in what we know as Jerusalem. You know who ended up taking over that city and built a citadel there? David. <laughs> That's And David doesn't do that until about a thousand. God's making this promise to Abraham about 2,000. That's almost a thousand years before those people are completely ousted from that land. And David... It runs them off and builds his citadel in what we call the city of David, which is on the south southeast corner of what we know as Jerusalem. So that, just to put that in perspective, these people understood this. When Moses writes this, these people know who they are because it's like, oh, those are the guys that live over that hill. Those are the guys that are always coming over at night and stealing my goats. And those are the guys that are coming down here and they try to run us off when the barley crop is ready to harvest so that they can harvest a bunch of my barley. And they're nothing but a thorn in their side. So they knew who these people were down there in that land. And he's promising, you're going to get all that land, Abraham. You and your descendants. It's going to be for all of your family. Everybody get this? And he makes it on that day. That's the day. So we go through this. It's unconditional, as we've already said. <laughs> Only God goes through there, pictured by the, smoke, by the torch and the smoking oven. He's the only one, and it involves that big piece of that big tract of land. And do we know where all those people lived in that? Well, we've got some idea, because there's a lot of history that's written, even extra biblical, that we can trace some of them, but some of them we don't know. We just know the Bible says they inhabited these pieces of land in there. Okay, let's go over to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17. And in Genesis 17, we're going to have two covenants. We're going to have covenant number two and covenant number three. And in this covenant, it tells us, and I want you to look at the last verse. How old was Abraham when he left Haran to come down to the land? 75. Look at the last verse of chapter 16. Abraham was 86. So how many years have passed between the time he left Haran, came into 11 years. Good. You all know Basic math, that's good. So Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Now we kind of skipped over chapter 16, but what happens in 16 is uh, Sarai goes, well, God's kept me from having kids, Abraham, so here's my handmaid. You can have, we can get, we can get a, a, a heir through him. So this is after God has made them the promises that you're going to have all these kids like the stars of the heaven. Then they try to resort to what Paul calls in Galatians, the flesh, because he compares Sarah and Hagar as sons of promise, the family of promise and the family of the flesh, fleshly efforts to try to produce God. Good lesson, by the way, in, in the book of Galatians. You, wanted, you, you want God to bring his thing about. And a lot of times you can't make God's thing come about. We can try. In fact, when we try to make God's things come about, we end up as the, the warning in Galatians we end up operating in the flesh like Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, and you end up creating this whole other problem. So the warning, obviously, in Hebrew or in Galatians is, don't resort to your flesh to try to achieve God's purpose. Just let God do it. 
Just like God of purpose said. Anyway, so as a result, he's 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. So he's 75 when he leans this. So about a year, excuse me, about one year has passed since chapter 15. Okay? So we come to verse 1 of chapter 17. Now Abraham was 99 years old. So now how many years have passed? A little trickier math now. 13 years. This is 13 years between verse 16 and verse 17. So 13 years have passed in between here. He's 99 years old. And the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And he says, and I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Now, what was the, what was the covenant promise in chapter 15? What did it involve? Land. He promised him land. Did he promise him anything else in the covenant in Genesis 15? <laughs> See, I'm trying to make it easy. No, he didn't promise him anything else as part of a covenant. He did make a promise to him about a lot of descendants, but that wasn't a covenant promise. So he says here in verse 17, or verse 2 of chapter 17, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. That was not promised in Genesis 15. No longer shall your name be called Abram. Abram was exalted father, but your name shall be Abraham. If you want to know what Abraham means, you look at the next phrase, for I'll make you the father of a multitude of nations. Abraham means father of Ham people. So fathers of people. And I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations from you and kings will come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your descendants. And I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. There we go. Okay. Just wanted to make sure I was stopping where I was supposed to stop here. So he adds, so he adds another covenant. This is, this is a, not an addition to the previous covenant. This is now a second covenant, which we've already seen. Yes. Well, 11 years and 13 years would be 24 years, yes. This is 13 years. Oh, yes. Wait, okay, just wait a second. I messed up on my math, didn't I? I, I, I messed up because I forgot to add the 86 in between. I made a mistake, yes. This is 24 years after. Am I still doing the math right? I'm probably still messing this up in my yeah, mind. He's 75. 75. There we go. Okay, there we go. So he's 99. So this is 24 years. Okay, so I messed up. I messed up on my when I was I, I left one of the uh, numbers out there. Thank you for pointing that out. So a lot of time has passed. I'm just doing basic you are, and I, and you know what? One of the things you do, you mess up in basic math. You forget things, and I forgot to add a number in there, so <laughs> I forgot to add it. Thank you. Now, what are the promises? Abraham is the father of many nations. Abraham is going to be fruitful. Abraham is going to have nations come from him. He's going to have kings from him. We just read all this, but just this is review. This covenant is unconditional. 
God does not tell Abraham there's anything you have to do. I'm promising this because it's an everlasting covenant. How can it be everlasting if it's conditional? Because if it's conditional, well, if you don't meet the condition, then it's not effectual. Therefore, it's not an everlasting covenant, right? The very nature of a conditional covenant is it can't also be an everlasting covenant. An everlasting covenant has to, by nature, be unconditional. But on top of that, God hasn't given Abraham any conditions. Okay? So, and he extends this covenant. I want you to look in chapter 17. Go down to verse 19. Verse 18, Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. I already got a son, God. Got a son. Let him be the guy. But God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I am going to bless him, and I will make him fruitful, and I will multiply him, and he shall become the father of twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you at this time next year. You get that? Abraham says, let, let, let this boy Ishmael, and God's going, no, no, no. It's going to be a son you're going to get through Sarah. You're going to have that son a year from now. And so this is very important because he's showing us that he promised that this covenant was going to be to Abraham and Abraham's descendants. Now he's making it clear, not just all your descendants, but specifically Isaac. Not Isaac and Ishmael both, but just Isaac. He's going to have to do the same thing as we already saw over there in chapter 28 with Jacob, not Jacob, and Esau both. Okay. Now, covenant number three. Let's jump back up in the context. Let's pick up in verse 9. God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant. So there's going to be something that he's going to have to guard. You and your descendants after you throughout their generations. And this is my covenant. So now... We had a state, verse 2, it says, I will establish a covenant. He goes through and establishes it. Now he says, this is a covenant which you should keep. See, he couldn't keep the first covenant because God's, God's the one that's going to do that. But this one he can keep because there's actually something he has to pay attention to. He says, between me and you and your descendants after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin. And it shall be the sign... <coughs> excuse me, of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. By the way, is there a reason that over here in the West we can say all we want, that we practice circumcision because of health reasons? But in reality, we do it because we consider ourselves to have been of Judeo-Christian roots and we've taken Old Testament things and applied them here. I'm not saying it's right or wrong to do this. I'm just saying this is kind of why this has become a practice in our modern society. We're carrying over something that we picked up, um, uh, especially over in America. Do you know even in Europe they didn't practice in, in most places? Jews did. In fact, I think I've told you this. I might have told you this story, but one of my professors in seminary, Laverne Schaefer, he and his wife, and I think they're at the Louvre, or is it the Louvre? Anyway, um, the Louvre, you know, the, the art museum in Paris. And they're in there, and in there they have Michelangelo's 
David, David. And for some reason, Michelangelo thought David shouldn't have any clothes on. So he's standing there, and I don't know that David ever ran and shepherded sheep in the nude, but he's standing there, and, and uh, Laverne Schaefer points out to the tour guide with the group, and he goes, he says, Michelangelo got that wrong. And he goes, uh, the tour guide goes, he says, David's not circumcised. <laughs> Pointed that out. And, the, and the, 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 the tour guide goes, so? And he goes, he was a Jew. That was a sign that you were part of the descendants of Abraham. Well, that didn't, see, they, the guy knew art. They didn't know history. Okay. So anyway, just pointing this out. This was a big deal. You and I do not appreciate what a big deal this, this was. In fact, this was such a big deal during World War II that sometimes Jewish men that tried to pass themselves off as non-Jews to escape being arrested in Nazi Germany, the, the Nazis would make the men show themselves so that they could see who was a Jew and who wasn't because non-Jews weren't normally circumcised. This is that big of a deal. I'm just trying to point out, even to modern eras here, how important this has been. Goes on in verse 13. A servant who is born in your house or was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. In other words, this is going to be something that's going to carry this on into perpetuity by you observing this. You're not supposed to stop doing this, guys. There's not a point in time in which I'm going to say this is okay for you as a nation to quit. Today it's okay if you're a Jew, because if you're a Jew, become a believer today, you're not a Jew anymore. Anyway, that's a, a side. This is not something that Abraham would have appreciated. But are the people of Israel still a people of God, distinct from the church? Yes, they are. And they have a point and a plan with God has for all this. Verse 14, but an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, this is important now, and this is, this is reiterated many times in the law for breaking the law in a number of situations, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The law stipulates this several times. person broke part of the law, they were cut off from the people of Israel, normally because they were put under a pile of rocks and died, so they couldn't inherit the promises. Here, he says, this is a person cut off. Therefore, this is a conditional covenant, and this doesn't make the first covenant, or this first or the second covenant conditional. What makes conditional is who gets to be part of the family that inherits those covenants. I could be a descendant of Isaac, but if I'm not abiding by this covenant, I don't get to inherit the other covenants that were made to Abraham and Isaac. Everybody get that? Everybody get that? So, covenant number two is conditional. It does not make the other covenants conditional. It's not an addition to them. It's a whole separate covenant. What? Yeah, it says covenant, oh, covenant number three up there. Okay, I, I misspoken. Okay. This does not make the other covenants conditional, but who is part of the family that inherits the covenants. It's the only thing that it makes conditional. Who's, who gets to be part of that family in this case? So, as we've seen that, three covenants, God can make more than one covenant is important because we partake, and this is the last thing here, because we partake only of the last covenant with Abraham, and we're going to save that for next week. That's going to be mentioned in Genesis chapter 22. You can go over and read Genesis 22 this week. You could go read Galatians chapter 3, because that's where we're told that you and I actually share in that covenant. So you and I do share in a covenant, but we don't share in these covenants. If we shared in these covenants, 
What's one of the things that we should be practicing as a Christian ordinance? Circumcision. Because that was part of the third covenant. And if we partook of those, what are technically we being promised? Land. We're promised land and we're promised that we would be a great nation. We promise that kings come from us. And none of those things are things that are taught anywhere by Paul or John or Peter or James or Jude when they write the letters to the churches. They never talk to us about inheriting land. And they never talk to us about being great nations. And they never talk to us about having kings that come from us. Those were things that were promised to these people. Because those covenants were for Abraham and Abraham's biological descendants that were observing also covenant number three. We're going to come back next week and we're going to begin looking at the covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis 22. Okay. Father, we're thankful for the time you've given us together. We're thankful that you are a God that shoulders ultimately the responsibility for your promises. And so we were able to see promises you made to Abraham outside of covenants and covenant promises you made to him that were shouldered by you, not by Abram, not by Abraham. And we're thankful for that because the same thing is true today. You have made a covenant with us. You have even made a covenant with Abraham that we share in and yet as we partake of those things, they do not rest on our shoulders, they rest on yours. And we're thankful for that reality that you are the God that is faithful. Even as we reminded earlier in our song, as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians, all of your promises, the promises you've made to us, they are all yes and they are amen. Because you are the ultimate amen. We're thankful for this day. Amen. Thank you.